is the executive director of the MIT Leadership Center and a senior lecturer in leadership and innovation at the MIT Sloan School of Management, where he pursues his vocation of executive teaching, coaching, and research. He is passionate about exploring how leaders in business, government, and society discover provocative new ideas, develop the human and organizational capacity to realize those ideas, and ultimately deliver positive, powerful results. Before joining MIT, he taught at INSEAD, London Business School, Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College, Brigham Young University, and in Finland as a Fulbright Fellow. His most recent book, Questions Are the Answer, delivers insights about the conditions that give rise to catalytic questions and how anyone can create them. His previous book, The Innovator's DNA, with Jeff Dyer and the late Clayton Christensen, explored where disruptive innovation comes from. Join me on this episode of the Curvebenders podcast with Hal Gregerson. Hi there, this is David Knorr, host of the Curvebenders podcast. I'm excited to share insights with you at the intersection of the future of work and strategic relationships. Make no mistake about it, there are a number of forces in the next two decades that will dramatically change the way we live, the way we work, the way we play, and the way we serve others. And I believe there are these relationships that will come into our lives that can change both the direction and destination of where we're headed. Those are the individuals I call curvebenders. So in each episode, I want to share with you insights from our research, from our interviews of great guests and their incredible experiences. I want to invite people to share their ideas and examples of not just coaches and mentors, but real curvebenders that have had a profound impact on their lives. Specifically, we're going to talk about pragmatic ideas in the evolution of your skills, your knowledge, and your behaviors. So let's get started. The way I see it, finding a path forward. Over the past three days, I rode my motorcycle with a small group of friends 800 miles through the God's most beautiful landscapes of the Smoky Mountains. Beyond the incredible scenery, we noticed something. The main street is resilient, adaptable, and undeterred. They fear God, they pay their taxes, they work hard every day to provide for their families, and only know one way the constant search for a path forward. In small diners in cities like Hot Springs, North Carolina, or Kingsport, Tennessee, we spoke with everyday people at breakfast and lunch, wearing masks, socially distancing themselves, and getting by the best way they know how. I came to this country as an immigrant almost 40 years ago, and have only begun to really see it in the past few years since I took up long-distance motorcycle riding. You don't see our amazing country when you fly over it, I was on the road 208 days for work in 2019. Even when you drive it, because we all take highways, we pass by most of it. Only when you take back roads, state roads, and ride through small towns, you'll see this great land's real fabric. You feel the country's texture, ride by many American flags, and feel the patriotism by so many who are grateful for all that we have. You hear of local concerns, certainly see a fair share of boarded-up storefronts of a bygone hustle-and-bustle Main Street era. 
incredibly noticeable was how devastating this global pandemic has been to small businesses. From the sign on a small town theater that read, closed until further notice, dated March 12, 2020, to restaurants that can only serve on the front or the back porch to stay socially distant. But you also see young families walking around and eating together. We saw the local sheriff walking around talking to people, small groups fishing by the river, multi-generation families on a lake, and plenty of people of all ethnicity hiking with their dogs and cycling through the hillside. The common thread was their path forward. Read the rest of this article at norgroup.com slash blog. You can also join us, ask questions, and engage other like-minded professionals in our online community. Learn more at norgroup.com slash forum for exclusive content, resources, and events. Welcome back to the Curvebenders podcast. My guest today is Hal Gregerson. Uh, Hal and I briefly met at Thinkers 50 in London uh, a couple years ago, and I've been an admirer of, of his work and his thinking and writing for a number of years. Hal, welcome to the Curvebenders podcast. David, thank you. It's a pleasure to explore the world of life in the future with you. Thank you. Uh, very kind of you. So, Hal, for those who may not know as much about you, your background, can you, for a few minutes, talk about where you've been, what you've done, and how you've arrived here? I have a long ziggity-zaggity journey. Early on in life, I was a professional photographer taking weddings and portraits. I also had aspirations to become a United States senator and worked in, in um, Washington, D.C. for a couple of senators. Then I fell in love with leadership, and it was, it's been my avocation and my vocation for the last 30 years. Um, we've been, I've been studying leadership and its success in every form, starting out with literally companies going global in the 1980s that have never gone global, global before, to the 1990s of transformation and change, to the 2000s of innovation, to the present where it's all things digital and the implications of that for our work and our life. You're best known for the power of questions. That seems to be a common thread in uh, all of your work. Uh, where did that passion for questions come from? And you also don't hear people typically say, I fell in love with leadership. Where did that come from? <laughs> Two sources there. Um, my mother and father, in his own way, were both deeply curious people. So my father was the kind of person who originally was a mechanic, then a welder, then a pile driver. He was also on the side an exceptional musician and in his teenage years was offered to be in the Utah Symphony. Um, and But he was largely a construction worker. Um, but anything mechanical, he could fix. We had metal lays and every kind of tool out in the back shed. Um, and literally, if he didn't have a part, he'd make it. And if he didn't have the tool to put the part on, he'd make the tool. So he was one roving curiosity person in terms of anything mechanical. And my mother was the exact opposite on the sense of not mechanically inclined a bit, but very relationally inclined. And so it didn't matter whether we were in the grocery store or anywhere. 
she always had this eye for what was going on around her because she was just deeply curious. She would engage from, with anyone on planet Earth, from the richest to the poorest, and had no, um, no hesitation to do so. And so I grew up in that sort of a world where, in retrospect, inquiry in its own way was a powerful form of navigating through that world. And then at 15 years old, I fell in love with photography. Um, and as I mentioned, became a, I, I created my own little company of wedding and portrait photography by Hal. And then when I was in my early 20s, I, my, my medium format camera was broken. I borrowed another professional's. It was a different brand and type. My best friend's wedding pictures I was taking on a particular day with this borrowed camera. I took hundreds of pictures, picked them up two days later, and I'm not kidding, none of those photographs turned out. They were all completely blank photos. Oh, no. <laughs> I had forgotten to pull what they call a dark slide out between the lens and the film, and that dark slide allows you to change the back. In the old, this was old film days when you change the back and put new film in. I had never used that in my camera, and I forgot to pull it out, and I literally... It was it was a dark dark day. It Did you remain friends or uh, dump you all together? It was a close friend, <laughs> and I'll never forget that black rotary dial phone, which people on the podcast may have no idea what a rotary dial phone is, but it had a rotary dial that you went clickety clack clickety clack with your finger. And I remember dialing the number and saying, "I'm sorry, you have no wedding photographs." And this was the day where there was really no backup. And um, I literally, I was so nervous and shaken by it all that over the course of the next four to seven months, I stopped doing it. It was just, I, I didn't know how to deal with that kind of embarrassing situation. And at that moment was the end of my college degree. I did not want to be in college. I always loved learning, but I hated school. I've got ADHD. I was kicked out of school seven times or six times or five times before I got into junior high. and um, But I always loved to learn. And so I was in college because my father was like, you're going to go to college. You're not going to be like me as a construction worker in your early 60s, getting up in that cold winter weather and going out. So I was there taking the easiest sort of major I could imagine, business management. The last semester, last year of my schooling, I'm sitting in a leadership class, a required leadership class. And Joe Bentley was the teacher. He was absolutely masterful and wise and pulled me in with the content because I think largely through my mother, I'd already been pulled into the world of leadership. Um, and I, I fell head, head over heels with the content of, wow, this is really fascinating. Um, I got a B plus in the class. <laughs> School is not my best friend, um, but I love the content. And that's the starting point from which, you know, I took off on how do you systematically study the best leaders in the world to figure out what they do and why they do it and how they might do it better. I was fascinated, if not frightened, by some research that you had done that highlighted that high school average high school student asks one substantive content based you know based question a month yeah. and 
conversely, uh, truly uh, innovators that we all know uh, are the opposite of that. They're constantly asking, they build a propensity to ask great questions. My question of you is, how does uh, a leader, how does a manager, how does an individual contributor uh, develop those skills? How do they learn to ask uh, the right questions? Because I think our certainly business community tends to reward answers and solutions and quick solutions and quick fixes in some capacity more so than that's a really interesting question. Um, bingo, you win the prize, David, you're on. <laughs> I mean, I, I hear you. And that, that resistance to inquiry for most of us started young. And one of the things I often do with executives is literally grab two pieces of eight and a half by 11 paper and have them draw three circles on one and three circles or oblongs on the other. And I asked them, tell me about your journey of inquiry from the moment you were born until the present. How did authority figures respond to you in your home? How did authority figures respond to you when you went to your primary school in K through 12? How did authority figures respond to you in your university or technical training? How did authority figures respond to you in your first professional job? What about your first professional managerial, managerial role? And what about today? And if you're an authority figure, how do you respond to other people's questions? And what's really fascinating is to, is to review these almost in a coaching-like setting or in a workshop where you literally hear the stories of people's journey of inquiry. And for most folks, I'd say 70 to 80% of the folks on planet Earth, it is shut down incessantly from the time they were born until the time they go to work. So you're right. It's like the data are there. I don't think it's just the U.S. where the average student in a one-hour class during a one-month period asks one question per month. I think it's more global than local. And that's because teachers are rewarded for getting students, knowledge in students' heads, and promoting them because they have the right answers. And unfortunately, David, the same thing persists as we go through much of our educational experience. Now, let me give you the total contrast with some like, someone like Arik Gadish, who's the chairman of Bain Consulting or Jeff Bezos at Amazon, or Scott Jorgensen, a senior leader at Salesforce, or fill in the blank. These are folks who are sustainably innovative. They do it over and over. More than half of those sorts of leaders went through schooling experiences where it was like Montessori schooling, international baccalaureate, very project-focused. You weren't showing up to learn math. You were showing up to solve a problem, to figure out how to do something. And that kind of logic is that it's a challenge-driven, problem-led approach to our life and to leadership. It's like, what's the challenge and how can I use this tool of inquiry or questioning to take it forward? And so now I'm coming back to your question, which is, you know, how could I get better at this if, frankly, the questions got shut down at some stage or even in the present? I guess, I mean, there's several habits that I've noticed in over 200 leaders, like the ones I mentioned around the world, who are really good, not only asking questions, but getting great answers to them. And the first one is they are very aware of whether they're asking questions. So the habit number one for me is audit your questioning patterns, just like you audit your books and your company. Think of yourself as a questioner 
asking and receiving questions. Take 24 hours and literally write down every question you ask or you are asked. And then at the end of the 24 hours, do a decent audit. What are the patterns? What's coming in? What's going out? How tough are those questions? How fearless are those questions? How productive are those questions? And honestly, the first step towards becoming better at this is a simple awareness through this kind of audit procedure of am I or am I not asking the kinds of questions I should? Now, I've got two or three more habits I could go through, but that's sort of the starting point. That's a great starting point. I've always believed organizations that uh, not just create sparks of innovation, but really sustain that have developed a culture that's unafraid of retribution, that's unafraid of, um, and, and I've spoken with Amy Edmondson about that fearless organization, right? Yeah. How do leaders create an environment where those fearless questions can flourish? My working definition for leadership over 30 years ago, and this largely came from one of the people who's significantly influenced me from a distance through his writings. His name is Parker Palmer, incredibly inquisitive, um, honest person and leader. And here's my definition. Leaders create a space where inquiry leads to insight and insight leads to impact. This was long before I ever crossed psychological safety. Amy is just exceptional on that front. And she spent a lifetime devoted to figuring that, that dynamic out in organizations. But that was my working definition of leadership from the get-go. And so if that's the working definition, I'm walking into this team or this unit or this organization or this country for that matter. What am I doing on a day-to-day basis that signals to people, this is a space where we ask the fearless question, we create the space for insight to come that we never had before, and we reduce the fear so that people will do something about it, and that's the impact part. And so how do I, you know, where's the starting point on that? Frankly, I believe that you don't change organizations by starting from the organization in, it's individual out. I don't care what level I am in the organization, it starts with me. And so that's where, to me, habit number two of these really effective questioners who are capable of innovating and doing things that make an impact, they show up with an ask, not a tele-approach in the conversations they engage in. doesn't matter if it's suppliers, direct reports, supervisors, customers. They're an ask versus a tell-leader. They're landing in this space with what Scott Cook, the founder of Intuit, described as savoring, savoring the surprise. It's like, I'm here to be surprised. I'm not here to confirm what I already believe or to tell you that this is the answer and I have nothing to learn here. So it's, it's really a positional stance. Ed Schein wrote a fantastic book, Humble Inquiry, a colleague here at MIT, and that's the spirit of it. I'm, I, starting point, I show up as an ask, not a tell leader. At the time of recording of this session, we find ourselves in the midst of this uh, COVID-19 global pandemic. What are some of the best questions you've heard 
leaders ask about both navigating the storm as well as the post-crisis rebound or recovery? I look at leadership through the lens of learning curves, transition curves, Kubler-Ross's adjustment curve with loss and death and grief, cross-cultural adjustment curves. Um, I look at I look at what's happened with the COVID crisis is we have all, all of us, been shoved off of competent learning curves, competency curves, whatever you want to call them. We've been shoved off of those unexpectedly by this pandemic. You know, if you would have asked me four months ago, you know, how do I wash my hands right? I would have laughed and said, who cares? <laughs> I, but, you know, now I had to, my one of our daughters is an RN nurse in an emergency room. And um, she taught us how to do it. And you can find out it online. But it's like I had, I'm learning as a 61 year old how to wash my hands right for the first time. And then there's a whole behavioral practice of doing it right on a regular basis. And so that's one of literally hundreds, I believe, of situations, habits, routines, practices where we thought we were good at something, and now all of a sudden, we have no idea what we're doing. And so when any of us get in that situation, David, it is like emotional flooding. It's our our instinctual, especially leadership response, is to just do something and not be in the present and experience all those uncomfortable feelings that are surfacing with this incompetency. And the best thing we can do as leaders is to not be action-oriented and instantly when these sorts of changes are coming and people have gone through enormous levels of loss. So, you know, we're grieving over all kinds of losses ranging from incredible, very tragic ones, the loss of close loved ones to maybe less tragic, but in our own lives, quite significant. And so it's like the first thing a leader, the better leaders do in these kinds of settings is they are deeply aware that learning curves are not just about gaining skills and in a transition. They're about being emotionally aware of what's going on in this person's life right now, not just behaviorally and intellectually, but emotionally. One of the people I interviewed a few years ago was that uh, a senior, um, I think the chief communications officer for media for the Volvo ocean racing um, race. It's a, it's a 24 seven multi-week long round the world ocean race. And when his team starts that race and they're delivering social media around the world, He literally doesn't let them send emails to each other. They have to talk to each other face to face because there's so much complexity going on. And he told me the first thing I do on all of those calls is I want to know, how are you doing? How's your family doing? What's going on in your world? Okay, let's get down to the business about Volvo Ocean Racing now. This was before COVID, but I think the logic is very similar. It's like, let's acknowledge that everyone, we are all in the midst of all kinds of losses and there is emotional turmoil going on and give, create this space for people to talk about it, to be open about it, and to be genuinely interested in the, as a leader 
and where people are at in that emotional space before we start shoving them up the learning curve to build all these new skills, given how, how much the world has changed. How do you balance this need to give them the space to really inquire as to their lives and their livelihoods um, before you act with the market pressures, board pressures, governance pressures to maneuver and pivot and daily huddles and how's our balance sheet and <laughs> our capabilities and what are we doing against our competitive landscape? I'm, I am not advocating that we all spend our time at work as counselors or coaches. That's not, that's not the only role in the work we do as leaders. And, and so to me, it's, it's not a question of either or, it's a question of when and how. And I get it, you know, we are all running beyond flat out in terms of trying to get things done right now, every one of us. And in that kind of moment, that's where habits that we may have acquired early on become incredibly crucial. And these are, you know, how long does it take when I get on a call with you, David, and instead of launching right into the technical thing we've got to solve because oil prices just drop to the negative, you know, what are we going to do here? And we're at Chevron or Shell or wherever in the world. The instinct is just to be complete crisis oriented. But if we do that, our effectiveness will decline over time and the decisions we're making in the moment actually are, they're not likely to be the best ones. It's not, we're not clear headed if our internal soul is really in turmoil. It just doesn't work that way. So, you and I discussed curve benders as this nexus of future of work and this idea of strategic relationships. My question of you is how do you believe this power of questions? and uh, question bursts, and all that you uh, are passionate about, you're advocates of, how do you believe this will evolve over the next decade or two? <laughs> it's interesting. Um, before before the, the, the COVID crisis, um, here's what I would say, you know, it's like when you're, when you're operating, living, working on the edge of uncertainty, there are no answers. So therefore questions are the answers. You're using questions to create answers that don't even exist. And I'll just be really honest in my personal and professional life. This, this, this pandemic has pushed me so off kilter that at times I've even questioned that premise. And and, and what I've found, David, is that when I return to the premise that indeed when life seems most bleak, questions are the light that will help us get through the dark, I'm coming back to realize through my own experience that is how it works. And so it might be a simple thing as I'm stuck I'm worried, I'm concerned, I'm trying to figure out what's the next big project. And it could be literally, you mentioned the question burst, literally taking 
a, an egg timer or your phone timer and setting it for three or four minutes, disciplining yourself or with a couple of other people about whatever you're stuck on, asking nothing but questions, no answers, no explanation to those questions. If you, if you discipline yourself, you get about 20 questions in four minutes. What happens is magical there in moments like these. 85% of the time, we will make at least a minor emotionally positive improvement. That's a gift, David, in today's times where we're all waking up sometimes wondering, is it worth getting up? And to me, the act of inquiry is this opening experience inside of us. And that's why we end up honestly feeling a little bit better. And after those quick three or four minutes, we also... 85% of the time, slightly reframe the challenge and have at least one new idea to move it forward. What we need in these times like these is that sense of making progress. I love Teresa Amabile's work around the progress principle and leaders that show up trying to help their people simply make progress. They're the leaders that other people want to work with, especially in times like these. And this is where Asking the right questions and that method of question burst as one approach to doing it, it can help us incrementally make a little bit of progress. Now, I'm, I, I use that around small details of my life, but I did some work with Chevron a number of years ago. And in certain parts of Chevron, they use that question burst process before they ever engage in multi-billion dollar projects because they're trying to get all the issues on the table. And I suspect that that same person is using the process right now to figure out what next, what are we going to do here in this company? Your most recent book is Questions Are the Answers, a breakthrough approach to your most vexing problems of work and in life. You, you published that in 2018. Any aspect of that book that your experience since then has refuted? I often say I learn as much about my own content after I published a book because people read it and they challenge your assumptions and they ask other brilliant questions and it makes you think about some of the stuff you've captured. Anything jump at you as you would rethink or rewrite or re recalibrate? At the very end of the book, I talked about what I call keystone and shadow questions. These are anchoring, centering questions that guide our work as leaders at work and for that matter in life. My shadow question don't need to go into the history. My shadow question is, will you ever measure up and matter, Hal? And if I try to live that question that I learned as a four-year-old in a home where my father was emotionally and sometimes physically abusive, but small on the physical side compared to what people deal with in other parts of the world. Um, so I, lived, I grew up with that question. You know, will I ever measure up and matter? Trying to just protect myself, be safe. How do I avoid getting whacked on the head? And, you know, that's my shadow. My keystone is one of um, how, how, can I, how can I see and reflect your light here and now better? Now, what I'm trying to say with that is how can I make a difference here and now? You know, what difference can I make as opposed to how could I please you or anybody else? They're just two very fundamentally different approaches to the world. I spent a good portion of my life trying to shut down my shadow. 
And especially when we're in moments of uncertainty, we're in that valley of transition, we're emotionally flooded, it's difficult, fear sets in, and our shadow question emerges. And that's when I sort of ask myself in the morning, will I ever much measure up and matter? And that's when I ask myself, do questions really matter? I have nothing to say here. I wrestle with that. But when I'm aware of those questions, the shadow and keystone, then I can make a choice. And I had, I was giving a speech in front of 4,000 people last year, one of the largest groups I've ever talked to. And I was scared to death on the back. And the shadow question was lurking there. And it jumped up and it was like, ha, you don't belong here. You'll never measure up and matter. What do you think you are going out there? And instead of trying to crush the shadow and shove it aside and say, no, you're not part of me, I instead put my arm around the shadow and said, hmm, I see you, I hear you, thank you for the reminder, but guess what? You're not relevant here, and I'm going to listen to the keystone, I'm going to go out there, and I'm going to try to see and reflect the light of the people in their eyes in a way that could make a difference. And so the, the aha is that I think in the book I'm implying that somehow you, you take your shadow and you put it in a box and it's never part of you. And the aha is our shadows are always there. In times of turmoil, they rear their heads more than ever before. But if we're aware of that shadow question lurking and surfacing, we can see it, we can acknowledge it, We can check the context. We can conclude, nope, you don't belong here. And let it live with us, but not dominate us. Uh, Thank you for that. So curve benders, this idea of future of work and strategic relationships that come into our lives and dramatically, if not profoundly, change both the direction and destination of where we're going, how we'll get there. In thinking about your own journey, can you think of one or two relationships beyond great bosses, great mentors, coaches that have had a, a profound impact on not just what Hal's accomplished, but who Hal has become? This person has been a mentor, a teacher, a friend, a colleague, um, but arguably, David, he has he has had the, the most substantive impact in terms of my professional work and the way in which I make my way through life. And his name is Bonner Ritchie. He was a, he was a professor in my graduate program on organizational change as a master's degree. Everybody was scared to death of Bonner because he expected you to think and he pushed you and he asked you very tough questions. I remember shaking and sweating and being afraid to go into that classroom. And all Bonner was trying to do was to live his keystone question, which was how can I prepare people to not get chewed up by organizations that are machines and focused on efficiency? It's like, how can I teach these people to protect themselves from organizations that end up chewing them up. I'll never forget at the end, about the middle of the class, I was writing a paper. It was two o'clock in the morning. I remember the red couch sitting there, the light, my Olympia typewriter finishing the paper. 
And I remember pushing back and thinking to myself, I don't care what Bonner thinks. I learned something really important here. And in that moment, it was the first time I'd ever had that experience in a school setting. And I ended up really admiring the way in which Bonner could push people and cause them to be extremely uncomfortable, but in a way that was challenging fundamental assumptions to help them move forward. So fast forward, program, master's degree ends. It's the um, pack-up time with my wife and small child to move on to a different city. We finished our school. Saturday morning, U-Haul truck. We have tons to get in that truck. We had to clean up the apartment before we could move. Knock, 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 about 7 o'clock in the morning. Open the door. Who's there? Bonner. A bucket, some plastic gloves, some cleaning stuff. And he said, how can I help? So here is this amazingly tough professor who combined it with, this, yeah, frankly, is the only professor who ever did such a thing. And, you know, and that's the kind of being he was. And the second part, the third part of the story is just to reflect his inquiry and inquisitiveness. He and his family one time were um, traveling in Germany, young kids. They bought a new Volvo. They were going down the Autobahn in Germany. They realized they'd missed the exit, and it was like 50 more kilometers to the exit. Bonner noticed the green strip of grass between the two sides of the highway, pulled over, pulled into the green strip to turn around and just go back easily. When he went onto the grass, the car tipped completely upside down. They were hanging from their seatbelts. It's a Volvo. The roof didn't crush. Bonner looks around at his family and he says, quote, this is interesting. What can we learn from this? <laughs> That's the kind of person he was, <laughs> ranging from helping people in the civil rights movement to helping in the Middle East with conflict to fill in the blank. He did not run from conflict. He ran to it with a deeply inquisitive mind to figure out a way for people to ask the better question, to build a better world. And I love Bonner. He's, that's just, he's the curve bender, David. Absolutely. Love that story. So Hal, in thinking about you meet thousands of leaders, you, you interact with thousands of students, in thinking about how you've been able to impact their lives, do you believe there's some common traits in curve benders that come into our lives and equally valuable? How does one become one? I am a fan of good books. And a number of the leaders I've crossed paths with, you know, they, they consume books to be able to see the world differently, fiction and nonfiction. Um, what that does for me, what books do for me, is they create an awareness. They, they spark an awareness of a world bigger than the end of my nose. And I have a big nose. <laughs> it's like there's something out there. And to me, the curb bender piece becomes, I wake up in the morning with an awareness of the fragile beauty of this life we're living. And I show up with the sensitivity to the fact that, David Noir, you 
You are a very unique you. And my challenge as a leader is not to make you into me, but is to figure out who are you deep inside of there. And the closer I can come to understanding the dark and the light sides of your world, the greater the probability I'll be a curb bender in your world. And there is no way you're going to let me in to those dark moments if you don't sense that my awareness is egoless and I'm very interested simply in your success, your growth, your momentum, your capacity, your being you. Sure. So that that's a uh, and again I'm getting a little bit of that uh, echo back. How how do people learn more about you? How do they read more up on your work and your writings and your teachings and your books and how do they get in touch? Simplest way is uh, halgregerson.com. I'm in all these Danish histories, so hal h a l g r e g e r s e n dot com. Um, I'd love to engage. Um, I'd love to learn about your challenges, the questions you ask, the way in which you do it better. This has been delightful. Thanks for making the time. Thanks for both the gift of your time and the insights on the Curvebenders podcast today. Thank you. It's been a treasure. If you've listened to the Curvebenders podcast for a few episodes, you know that I'm writing the Curvebenders book on why strategic relationships will power your nonlinear growth in the future of work. This will be book number 11 with tools, ideas, insights, case studies, great interviews like the one you heard today. In essence, what you need to create a personal and professional growth roadmap in your future of work. I'm excited to begin sharing key sections with the members of our NOR Forum community. So go to norgroup.com slash forum and check out the Curvebenders thread for more details. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Curvebenders podcast on creating space for inquiry with my friend Hal Gregerson. Three comments Hal made during our interview really resonated with me. Uh, Number one, when I asked them, how can we all get better at leading more with questions and asking better questions? Uh, I love some of the tips, starting with understand the kinds of questions that spark creative thinking, creating the habit of asking questions. Again, think about how often we all jump in with solutions or answers or ideas versus just creating a little bit more space for better questions, great questions to come out. Respond with power of pause, brainstorming for questions, uh, or kind of really thinking of rewarding your questions. Those are all in the question burst exercise, I think I thought was really useful. I love his definition of leadership that he said he think came up with 30 years ago. 
which is great leaders create a space for inquiry that often leads to insights. And then they really empower and, and really enable their team, their organization to create impact from those insights. Last but not least, I think his uh, keystone and his uh, shadow questions really touched me. The keystone, remember, as an enabler, the shadow was doubt that we all have in some way and all struggle in some capacity. So if you remember, his keystone question was, how can I see and reflect your light here and now better? And his shadow question was uh, for himself, will I ever matter, measure up and matter? So really important to think about what are some of those for you. I would highly, highly encourage you to check out his book. He's got a fantastic monthly newsletter. Uh, I think it's called Thanks for Asking. And you can certainly learn more about Hal and his work at halgregerson.com. Don't forget, I turned the show notes from these podcasts into more in-depth articles. So check them out in our free member-based community, NOR Forum. Join us at norgroup.com slash forum. I'm so thankful for our listeners on the Curvebenders podcast. I want to keep producing great content most beneficial to your personal and professional growth in this idea of future of work. So I'd love to hear your feedback. Don't forget to follow us on the various social media channels. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on LinkedIn, and I'm using the hashtag CurvebendersPodcast. So make sure you follow that for all of our latest updates. 